Well, good morning. It continues to be a privilege to have the chance to come in and to be with you as, as a church family. Uh, as a general rule, they try not to let youth pastors out in public too often, and so it's particularly uh, a joy to be able to come out and share in this time with you all. Thank you for that, that kind introduction. I'm excited uh, to spend some time in the Word with you this morning looking at a topic that I think is familiar to all of us, and yet it's one of those things that can kind of just disappear into the background and be forgotten. How many of you have ever had a, a, a TV show that you just loved for season one, and then season two came out, and you thought, they forgot what this show is about? Anybody ever had that experience? Uh, sometimes it seems like our whole culture is having that experience right now as well. It's easy to lose the plot. It's easy to, to forget whatever it is you're doing has been about, what it, was, what it was established or intended to be. And nowhere is that more deadly, more dangerous than when it comes to understanding what God is up to in this grand display of his glory known as creation, known as time, known as history. And this morning, I hope to take a look at that topic, again, familiar, but I hope it will be an encouragement to us. Two weeks ago, you looked at the text of John chapter 5, 31 to 47, and your pastor Oliver laid out from the scriptures those many witnesses that Jesus had listed to prove his deity and to prove the Jews had spiritual bankruptcy. Pretty scathing rebuke that he delivered there. And in the midst of that, Jesus declares something that has always struck me as being profoundly important for how I live as an individual, for how I, I function as a pastor in my friendships, and most importantly, as a husband, as a father. It's a sentence that has just lodged itself in my mind. And so when I saw that you went over it recently, I asked your pastor if I could use that sentence as a springboard to preach the entire Old Testament. And he said, go for it. <laughs> that sentence is found in John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. In John chapter 5, 39, you remember these words just from recent times. Jesus says this to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. What I am hoping to do this morning in our time together is simply remind us of this truth that God's testimony to us in both halves of your Bible, including the clean pages of your Old Testament, you haven't broken in all the way yet, has always been to trust in the salvation that he would provide and not in ourselves. And it is so tempting for us to open our scriptures and start acting like it's a, it's a manual for how to fix ourselves. What's broken this week? Let's turn to the right page and let, let's fix my problem. Or that it's some guide that can kind of, kind of help us crack the behavioral code. We start treating the Christian faith like karma. If I will do the right things that God likes, then he will give me the blessings I want. And how do I figure out how to manipulate him into making my life what I want it to be? Or perhaps it's, it's for those of us that are kind of on the perfectionist end of the thing. Uh, if I can manage to just figure out God's standards and perform at that level, then that hollow and stressed out feeling in my soul will get better as I'm finally confident of his approval and his acceptance of me. I know we all know better, but it is good to be reminded sometimes of the simple gospel at the heart of all the scriptures. God so loved this world from the time he made it, from the time it fell, that he sent his son. And if we believe on him, full stop, we will never perish, but have eternal life. So I want to take a trip back in time with you all, and I want to consider five different circumstances or seasons of life 
in which we, in imitation of the scriptures, can testify to Jesus and his salvation. If you want kind of a handy little outline of world history, this has been what's always helped me. I, history tends to break down nicely, I find, in about 500-year chunks. So you go back to about 4,000 years B.C., and you've got creation. Then we'll skip a bit. Jump up to 2000 BC. Abraham, 1500 BC, Exodus. 1000 BC, David. 500 BC, exile. Zero, Jesus. And you go forward, right? You got 500, the end of the ecumenical councils, 1000, church schism, 1500, Reformation, 2000. I'm graduating from high school. Major world events, right? <laughs> and so if you, if you want to just kind of think in that chunk, we're going to sort of walk along. And what's interesting to me is on a lot of those major turning points in history, God has done major turning points in redemptive history. And we're going to start by looking all the way back at the beginning, some 4,000 plus years before the coming of Christ. If you want to follow along, you can look it back in Genesis chapter 3. You know this well. And here we will see, first of all this morning, testify to Christ on the day of disaster. Testify to Christ on the day of disaster. In Genesis 3, we know the context. God has finished putting all things into being. What a tour de force Genesis chapter 1 is. The power of God in establishing all things laying all the metaphysical answers to all of life's biggest questions. And at the end of all that, he stands back from his work and he says, it is all very good. God has done this special work of creation in making a man, Adam, and established him in his role. He makes Adam from the dirt. He names him dirt. And then he says, go take care of the dirt. Eve has been brought into this picture and established in her role. She was made from the man. She was named according to the man, and she was brought to the man. And now they join together, are ready to carry out the shared mandate to have dominion over the world, to rule over it as stewards under God, to be fruitful and multiply and fill it. And then the infamous temptation that sneaky snake comes into the garden and he begins his devastating work, twist, twisting God's word just enough to sow seeds of doubt about God's character and what he had said and what he had meant and his goodness. And Eve takes that fruit and she eats it. The command of God is broken. And Adam, really important to note, with her, takes the fruit as well and eats it. And they die spiritually on the spot. Their eyes are opened and shame floods into their relationship. And not only shame between them, but fear before God. And they hide. God comes and calls to them and draws them out of their hiding, it's time to face the music. And we know how it goes. Finger pointing, blame shifting, you did this, you did that. It's her fault, God, no, it's her fault. God says, okay, here's what's gonna happen. This entire amazing, wonderful thing that I gave to you is now under a curse. And this is what it's going to look like. As far as disastrous days go, I don't think anybody's ever topped this one. This is one of those, this must be the end of the story feeling days. There's no way back. You can't undo what's been done. There seemingly is no way forward. We're dead. The world is cursed. Just an absolute nightmare. And yet in the midst of this worst day ever, God does not delay to light a candle of hope right in the midst of that darkness. Did you know Genesis 3.15? You guys are going to, I know you, you're, you're well familiar with this passage. The first gospel, right? The Proto-Evangelion. Have you ever noticed 
It's the end of God's first sentence of cursing. He doesn't even get one sentence of curse out before he tacks on hope. And in Genesis 3.15, we read, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. There will unfold, as we now know from our vantage point, a millennia-long struggle between this serpent and the descendants of Eve, but there will also be a solution. As in English, the word seed in Hebrew can refer to a single seed or to a large quantity of seed. And the enmity will be between all the collective seed of Eve. But notice how he says there will be enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. But who does the bruising? He. He. This is an individual. This is a person. Someday he will come. And when he does, there will be an exchange in which a wounded heel is traded for a crushed head. And this establishes the plot for the rest of human history. A fallen and broken people looking away from themselves to the promised seed as a very real hope even when everything seems lost. Brothers and sisters, I know some of you know so much more than I do that there are dark days in this life. That there are days of real disaster and real distress. Health is taken in an instant. Financial ruin befalls us without warning. Relationships are severed by betrayal you didn't see coming. Death separates us from those that we love. And sometimes even worse still are the devastations that come about as the result of our own sin when loss and heartache is compounded by guilt and condemnation. Days when it feels like it's all over. And if we look around the world, we don't have to look far to realize we're not alone in feeling that sometimes. We live in a world drowning under anxieties and depressions and despair is commonplace. Even as a youth pastor, it has struck me so profoundly how even in the last decade and a half, the amount of despair in the hearts of even our young people is often staggering. What comfort can there be? What reason to look ahead to the next sunrise on days like this? Darkness may veil our view of heaven on some days, but it does not dim heaven's view of us. And into that darkness, as promised, was sent the seed. And he has indeed delivered the crushing blow to Satan, to sin, and to its curse. And that's why Paul is not using hyperbole in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he cries out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a lot of comfort in a small amount of space. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. I read this week an article that strongly warned people against pointing your friends to God and to his purposes when they are going through loss and suffering. It was on a list of like the top 10 things you should never say to somebody who's grieving. What else are you going to give another in the day of disaster? I mean, compassion and empathy have a place, but the knowledge that our Lord Jesus Christ has conquered death and hell is the only rock to find shelter in when the storm reaches full blast. That's it. When humanity teetered on the brink of total undoing there in the garden, the scriptures testify not that God said, Adam and Eve, look, here's the deal. You fix this mess 
and maybe we'll talk. Adam and Eve, that's it. I'm done with you. I'm moving on. Plan B. The message of Genesis 3 is that a great Savior is coming in which mankind can place its hope generation after generation after generation. Let us testify to the same. Preach it to our own soul. Declare it to the afflicted and the sorrowing. Not as a magic potion. Not saying just like, oh, wow, you look sad. Trust God, it'll get better. And walk away like, well, now I don't have to deal with that anymore. No, lean in, come alongside. Speak words of comfort in love. But speak words of truth. So that our loved ones will find under their feet a reminder that there is an unmovable rock there even if you can't see it, that will never change. We have, throughout the recent centuries of the church, been comforted by hymns like, It is well with my soul, or God moves in a mysterious way. The author of both those hymns lost sight of their own words later in life and went astray. It is so easy to lose sight of what we know is true when disaster strikes. I like C.S. Lewis who said, faith is holding on to in the dark what you have believed on in the light. And sometimes when our hearts are fainting, one of the greatest ministries of God is somebody else, a brother and sister in Christ, who will stand beside us and point the way back to the truth. How tragic it only took one generation into the fallen world. And that hope there in the garden was already being abandoned. If we face this life in our own wisdom, we will be hunted by our own sinful desires as Cain was. If we, if we turn away from the hope of deliverance that God has given us, we will find the consequences unbearable for our sin, as Cain did. We will be driven from blessing and comfort, as Cain was, and we will perish. There is only one hope for fallen man, and that hope is that little dot that connects all of God's work from beginning to end, and so the story moves forward. And we now sweep over 2,000 years forward in time, Mankind overwhelmingly has chosen to walk in the footsteps of Cain until only one family remained that fears God. And this one family, the family of Noah, is given shelter in an ark while the rest of the world is destroyed by a global flood. We don't ever want to stop telling our Sunday school stories. Our world doesn't like to talk about the flood very much, does it? But this stands as a testimony to the seriousness of sin and the goodness of God. And I love how Peter brings it up in his epistle when he's like, you know when people are saying like, ah, God's not coming back. He doesn't really care. So it escapes their notice of this one very important fact. He already drowned the entire planet once. He's serious. But he's also a savior. And he brings Noah and his family through the flood. From this one family, the scriptures go on to describe all the nations of the earth rise. With a little help from God scrambling their languages, they eventually begin to spread out and inhabit various regions, fanning out from the Fertile Crescent. And after a couple millennia of relative silence from heaven, memories of the promised seed are growing faint. And then God moves the plot forward in a big way. Secondly, this morning, testify to Christ in the face of dismay. Testify to Christ in the face of dismay. We meet a man named Abram. You know the story well. He's living in this Chaldean city of Ur. And there he's visited by God and given a strange mission. Again, about 4,000 years ago, about 2,000 BC. Uh, for some of you cool kids, Google the royal game of Ur. They've actually discovered a board game and found a tablet with the rules on how to play from the time of Abraham. And so you can read Genesis and play the royal game of Ur and just feel so connected. 
God reaches out to this man and he says, get up and go. Where? I'll show you. Uproot your entire life. Break with all your traditions. Say farewell to all your friends. Abandon all of the different things you've put in place to secure your own financial and generational well-being. Except that you're now going to be that awkward social pariah that just on a whim abandoned everybody and everything. Just go. And he undertakes this arduous journey heading west and north along the Euphrates River until he reaches Haran, just north of the land of Canaan. And there his father died. And then God led him south. And the rest of the life of Abraham looks a lot like a yo-yo. He goes down to Egypt, and then he comes back up to Canaan, and he goes down to Egypt, and he comes back to Canaan, and he's just kind of walking back and forth, living in tents. God did make a covenant with Abraham, God gave to Abraham and to his descendants the sign of circumcision. But think about how discouraging Abraham's life must have felt. He's been given all these amazing promises, but his life is just this string of awkward, scary, embarrassing stories as he walks around and around and around in a land he will never take possession of. After a very foolish attempt to help God's plan out, Abraham and Sarah are finally given the first glimpse of something positive in the form of their son, Isaac. This is the child of promise, the child born when all hope of bearing children seemed to have already been long past. And God has told Abraham, this is the line through which all those promises I made to you will be fulfilled. Okay, God, maybe I'm starting to figure this out now. Okay, maybe I'm starting to understand you do have a plan. You do have a purpose. And then God tells Abraham to go sacrifice that son. Can you imagine how absolutely pointless life must have seemed at this point? What's your big plan, God? Is this all some kind of joke? I followed you so far, and all you've done is have me move north and south, north and south, north and south along this eastern shore of the Mediterranean. But we know what Abraham did. He trusted God. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, tells us that he was even convinced that God was planning to raise his son from the dead. This is a kind of faith I don't think I have. I don't think I have this kind of faith because put yourself in Abraham's shoes, right? You don't have the rest of the Bible. It's been 2,000 years of people just relatively running amok and spreading out and all of a sudden this God says, go somewhere, do something. What do you think would have been more likely for you? A, to assume you've been in the hot sun too long and you've gone crazy. And all this business about being led around by some new monotheistic deity is just insanity. You know people have asked him, you hear voices, Abraham? They're telling you to do what now? Or B, you do believe God is real, but now you're convinced he's just a cruel or petty deity like all the pagan gods that they've ever known. He messes with people. He delights in their futile suffering. Or do you believe that God is a covenant-keeping God, and if he promised a blessing through Isaac, then he isn't going to let a little thing like death get in his way? Honestly, how would you react? Abraham, by the grace of God, went with option C. And we know the rest of the story. After Isaac's life has been spared, a ram has taken his son's place. We read this in Genesis 22, 14 to 18. Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide, as it is to this day. In the mount of Yahweh it will be provided. Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. What had seemed so pointless only a few moments earlier is now one of the most poignant anticipations of Christ's sacrifice in all of Scripture. And as Paul loves to point out over and over in the New Testament, God's blessings here to Abraham, his reckoning of Abraham as a righteous man has nothing to do with Abraham's perfect track record of righteousness. Like, read Genesis. Abraham had issues. It had everything to do with Abraham's dogged commitment to the fact that God will keep his promises. That's it. Do we really believe that God has a purpose behind everything he is doing and that all of it is for the glory of his son and your good as he has ordained to get caught up in that glorifying of his son? It's not uncommon for God's children to experience seasons of life that are dismaying. We're trying to be faithful. We're trying to follow God's leading. But it feels like we're stuck on a lazy river ride that's just going in circles. And not like a fun one, like a Silverwood, but like an old abandoned one that's going around a parking lot or something. It's just like, there's nothing going on here. Where's the excitement? Where's the fulfillment? Where's the sense that my life matters? Maybe you graduated high school or college and circumstances interrupted your big dream. Now you just feel stuck. Your cool career, that amazing spouse just haven't materialized. And you're wondering, hey God, I... I was on fire for you. I even sang songs that said I was on fire for you. What happened? Maybe you're a mother raising young children, and life is this relentless rotation of short naps broken up by dirty diapers, grocery shopping, dishes, endless laundry. This doesn't look or feel anything like what your friends are posting on Instagram. You are trying to honor the Lord in the little things, but are little things the only things that you will ever experience? Maybe you're a dad hitting those midlife years and you're realizing there are goals you had in your 20s that are becoming mathematically unlikely or impossible. Maybe you imagine going on great missions for God or accumulating resources to undertake big projects for God. Things that would make a difference in the world, make a mark. And it isn't looking like any of those things are going to materialize. You're passionate for Jesus, but it seems like Jesus has put you on a shelf. Preach to yourself. Testify. If God can bring about a mighty nation and the line of the Messiah through a dude who wandered around living in tents and pretending his wife was his sister, then what can't he do through any of us if we will be faithful to believe in his promises. How many of us will only learn in glory how God chose to use our lives in the unfolding plot of history pointing everything to the glory of his son. God isn't looking for flashy. He is looking for faithful. He isn't looking for those who are perfect. He's looking for those who will trust his promises. He isn't looking for the self-righteous. He's looking for those who will believe him. And every promise of God for us is wrapped up in that promised seed in Jesus. And that is a lesson that would be largely forgotten, unfortunately, by the descendants of Abraham. Through Isaac, the son of promise, and then through Jacob, a nation was indeed founded. This nation would find itself enslaved in Egypt for 400 years before being brought out into the wilderness through power and miracle as God humbles the mightiest nation on the planet at that time, humiliates and shames their gods, brings them through the Red Sea out into the wilderness where God can then draw near to his people to make more promises, more covenant to them, and to give them his law. And it is that law that will become a tragic stumbling block and a distraction for God's people. 
Testify to Christ over your spiritual diligence. Testify to Christ over your spiritual diligence. Roughly another 500 years after Abraham, we find ourselves among the Hebrew people from 70 people that God brought into Egypt. Now we have a real nation made of 12 tribes from the 12 sons of Jacob. And God calls the people to worship him and to have a relationship with him. But this people has a problem. They're a lot like us. The law had not even been brought successfully down from the mountaintop before the people were already egregiously breaking it. What a shame. Wouldn't it have been cool to see what tablets written with the finger of God would have looked like? What kind of penmanship does Yahweh have? Version 2 was written by Moses. God's people are sinners. They are lawbreakers. They don't, and here's the key, they don't trust God's promises and fear instead. And so God spends 40 years teaching humility and ending a rebellious generation by having them wander around in the wilderness. As that time of wandering comes to a close, the people have now gathered together near the promised land. This is a new generation that has risen up. They've all buried rebellious parents in the desert. Except for Joshua and Caleb. And Moses reminds this new generation of the laws of God and how to obey them, how to keep them, how to be faithful to Yahweh. But he doesn't just leave them with a list of rules. He says, keep your eyes open, somebody's coming. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 13, Moses writes, you shall be blameless before Yahweh your God, for those nations which you shall dispossess, they listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, Yahweh your God has not allowed you to do so. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore. I will die. Remember back at Mount Sinai when God was beginning to thunderously announce himself to the people? And they were like, This is too scary. Moses, you go up there. You guys talk it out. Bring us back a letter. And Moses says, God is going to speak to you again. Not in a thunderous voice like freaked you out at Mount Sinai. He's going to speak to you through a person who will come from among you. Yahweh said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And God gives his people a choice. Listen to the one who will come or try to handle it on your own. Moses reminds them that God's voice had terrified them in his law but that God's grace was going to come to them through his promised one. And that his words would be their life. And that ignoring him would be their doom. And this was one of the central points of Peter's second sermon in Acts chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus is this one who must be listened to or else we will be utterly destroyed. The law is good. God's laid out standard of perfection is good. And it's not just good as in like nobody likes it, but you, but you just need to acknowledge it. It's not like, you know, a, 
a bowl full of raw vegetables with no salad dressing. We all acknowledge it's healthy, but it is pretty chewy. No, God's law is good in that it defines, as Jesus taught us, what it means to love God and what it means to love people. God's law is what enables us to have fellowship one with another. But it consistently points out how wicked and evil we are. And that is why God's law is not our hope. There are few paradigm shifts more important than moving obedience in our minds from an act of fear longing for acceptance to an act of love living out salvation by grace. As Moses said in his very last words to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 33, 29, blessed are you, O Israel. Usually we direct those blessings to God. What is it about Israel that's so blessed? Who is like you? This again, it sounds like language you usually use for Yahweh. But blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you? A people saved by obedience, by righteousness, by good works, by dotting your I's and crossing your T's. A people saved by Yahweh who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty, so your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places. These are the words Moses leaves ringing in their ears as he then goes off to die alone with God. Trusting in the promises of God, the people of God had the confidence that they were a loved people and a saved people. Obedience would flow rightly and richly from that great truth. And so it must in our lives too. This is so critical. We can preach the doctrines of grace. We've got Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 memorized. Some of you may be in Greek, overachievers. But how does that come out in the way that we live our lives? How does that look in our marriages? How many of our spouses hear our voice and they hear the thundering from Mount Sinai and they say, scary. If I can't figure out the secret code of meeting your expectations today, then nothing but fire and flame is coming down from the mountain today. And they walk around nervously. How many of our families, is this how we're parenting? Why did you do that? Do you know how embarrassing that is to me? Do you know how that makes me feel? Do you realize how far short of my expectations you fell? With anger on our countenance and our discipline coming in frustration and punitively, Brothers and sisters, this cannot be. For those who have found shelter in the grace of Yahweh, we must model it. God never compromised his standards anywhere, ever. But graciously, he was able to be for his people what we could not be for ourselves. And there must be an abiding and brilliant core of grace in all of our relationships. To put it another way, our relationships must understand and embody what covenantal loving kindness looks like. The kind of loving kindness that can uphold the righteous standard of God, but put it in its right place, not as a test of covenant commitment, but is the opportunity to demonstrate the joy of covenantal commitment. This will be something that the world so desperately needs to see in the people of God. I told Oliver I had a conversation some years ago on a college campus with a Muslim uh, from the Muslim Student Association there. And I I love getting into debates with, with the Muslim group on campus because the discussion was never about like, should we do pot 
or you know what my sociology professor just said, they'd immediately come and say, we believe this book is true, and put their Quran down, and you believe that book is true, pointing at my Bible, let's talk about salvation. And it would always come down to this, can salvation be by grace or not? Can God forgive man through a substitute or not? And at one point, this individual I was talking with, he said, you know what the big problem with your religion is? If you take away fear of judgment, if you believe God has once and for all forgiven you of your sins, if you take away the fear that one day you'll stand before God and he'll say, not good enough, then you have taken away all your motivation for a holy living. And you Christians are just going to sin all you want because you don't believe there's going to be any consequences. And I asked him this question for which he had no answer. And it was this, what is the greater motivation for obedience, fear or love? We weaponize relationships to manipulate behavior. God demonstrates his love and calls us to repentance. We have to be imitators of that pattern. And you know what's cool? If we do, you don't just get the behavior, you get the heart, and that transfers generationally. Why do so many church kids bolt the instant they go to college? Because you've made God seem painful and onerous. Let's make him seem precious and dear. The Bible never offers law as the hope of our relationship with God. We must anchor our Christian life. We must imitate God's picture of covenantal love in all our relationships by looking always to the Savior who fulfilled the law on our behalf. And this can become clouded when it starts to look like we're doing pretty fine on our own without a savior. Look next with me as we see scripture call us to testify to Christ above human deliverance. To testify to Christ above human deliverance. Fast forward yet another 500 years. We're about the year 1000 BC now and the greatest king in all of Israel's history in terms of reputation and prominence, his son would uh, be richer and smarter But as far as a hero of the nation, we have King David, a mighty warrior. This was a guy. I had a a professor in college who had been special forces back in Vietnam, and he said, warfare is weird today. It's just like a bunch of people sitting in front of green screens and turning dots off, making dots disappear. Those dots are the bad dots. These are the good dots. And we're going to try to make the bad dots disappear before the good dots disappear. We're talking about a man who grew up killing lions and bears with his bare hands. A man who as a leader of a scrappy bunch of military guys that he had pulled together from all over the place was a force to be reckoned with in the ancient world. A mighty warrior. If you read about his gibberim, his mighty men, it's just, whoa. He was a poet, he was an author, he was a wordsmith. He was not only a man of strength and resolve, he was also a man of great feeling and passion, who loved beauty and could articulate it in music, a national hero who loved God. And underneath his reign, as he takes the place of Saul and the nation begins to stabilize its borders and he is successful in his conquests, had David finally managed to bring about the promises of God, the utopia of God's people living in the land and worshiping Yahweh and having international prominence and doing all of that without having to wait for that seed to show up. David understood his place in history. He understood who he was. In Psalm 110, one of the passages most quoted in the New Testament, David says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in a holy array. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's somebody that's on my short list of people I want to talk to in glory one day. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink by the brook of the wayside. And therefore, he will lift up his head. David knew his place in history. This isn't my world. This isn't even my throne, ultimately. I have a God who says to my Lord, this is yours forever. He's the one that will bring about all the victories. He's the one that will rule over everybody. I think David just counted it an extreme privilege that in some way he was a type and a foreshadowing. But he was a flawed one, wasn't he? David knew his life was but a passing vapor in God's bigger plan to establish an eternal king on his throne. And as time went on in David's life, it became increasingly obvious why that was such a good thing. Because it turned out that David was also a murderer and a deceiver and an adulterer, a poor father, sometimes a coward. No, this was not the one to bring about God's promises. And just like David, every single person who has ever been lifted up or has tried to claim for himself, look, here am I, see your salvation, has proven after one, one after the other after the other to be pathetic and pitiful excuses for a Messiah. And so Christian, keep your Christian loyalties and hopes fixed on Jesus. We have a strange cult of personality problem in the church today. Not even John MacArthur can fix what's wrong with the world. Even if Pastor Oliver were elected president of the United States, we would still need Jesus. And in a year like this where it's an election cycle and we see all these speeches going on and people are hyping up the problems and people are hyping up the divisions and there's an acute sense of what's wrong in the world. It's interesting to see where the people of God turn. Channel surfing and deep doom scrolling and oh no, if my candidate doesn't pull through where it's all lost. Or, oh, did you hear what so-and-such or such a pastor said? I can't believe that. Oh, my goodness, this was the person I thought was going to finally bring the church back together. What's your blood pressure like right now? Oh, church? None of those people matter when it comes to how this thing turns out. Because the one that does matter already came. And his name was Jesus and what a joyful privilege it is for us not to pretend like sin isn't sin, not to pretend like there isn't sadness when you watch civilizations in decay, but to be able to sit back and say, our God reigns. His Messiah has it all under control. We're good. So let's get some popcorn. Let's be faithful. And let's see how Yahweh has decided this all plays out for the glory of his son and the good of his people. In this world, we do see God do great things sometimes to show off his power, to vindicate his people. There have been some glorious times in history where God just likes to demonstrate to the lofty, to the proud, no, no. I love studying the Reformation. I love reading about the First Great Awakening. I love these periods in history where God humbled the haughty and raised up his people and let the gospel get unleashed in a way where all the world had to stop and take notice. But until Christ returns, 
we still live in a cursed world. And everything will be trending towards downfall and decay. That's the nature of a cursed world. As Christ said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, will he even find faith on the earth? It's going to be hard. And so we jump one last 500-year-ish jump for our last point this morning. Testify to Christ in seasons of downfall. In seasons of downfall. The book of Isaiah was written across the reigns of four kings of the southern part of the divided kingdom of Israel. The apostasy, the wickedness of the ten northern tribes had brought about God's judgment in the form of the just barbaric Assyrians who had captured them, devastated their land, hauled them off and scattered them to the four winds. The two southern tribes did marginally better for a time in holding to Yahweh and God honored them. God honored them in some ways you can actually find uh, inscribed on some ancient artifacts we've dug up in the, in, uh, in the ancient Near East. But they too turned their back on Yahweh. And God in the prophet Isaiah is coming to let the two southern tribes collectively known as Judah understand judgment is coming. Exile is coming. And let me explain why. In many ways, it's a legal brief. God laying out his legal case against his wayward people. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 1, beginning of verse 2, opens this way. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. He's speaking to creation to take witness. For Yahweh speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Yikes. When Yahweh shows up and his opening gambit is, you're worse than an ox and a donkey. Alas, sinful nation, People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. This is the plight of Judah. And God will use some very strong language to describe the coming judgments, language we often don't share in Sunday school classes. But it never ceases to amaze me, again, how God weaves grace into his announcement of judgment. It's just who he is. He cannot speak of wrath without also pointing to his son. In Isaiah 9, we read those famous words that are not just for Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, what is going on here? This is a restoration beyond just God's people. This is a hope that breaks across borders this is for all of us pig-eating Gentiles over here in America. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. How will all this happen? For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord or Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. That's cool. Notice what he's not saying. Hey, Israel, remember Sinai? Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, blessings, cursings. There were stipulations on how your civil life would look if you walked away from Yahweh. And so here's the deal. You have broken every single one of the checkboxes that were on that documented. And now here's all the small print coming into effect. But when he gets to the, so now what part? It's not, so here's the deal. I've outlined all the different things you're going to have to do if you want to have a hope and a prayer of winning back my favor. Or here are the torments I'm going to make you go through and I'm going to make you suffer until I feel like it was good enough. And then we can try this again. No. He says, you failed. Utterly. And that's why I am going to have to fix this. And I will, because I promised I would. That is the hope. That is the hope. How will this child accomplish such a marvelous thing to bring about God's favor on his people weighed down in their iniquities? Once again, no book in the Old Testament is more clear on this than the book of Isaiah. Words you know well, Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then down in verse 10, Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. And then here's a little resurrection for you. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. The clarity is coming into focus. In Genesis 3, it's simply a seed is coming and he'll fix it. In Abraham, somebody is coming from your line and he's going to fix it. Later, it's going to be through Isaac, it's going to be through Jacob, it's going to be through the tribe of Judah. It's going to be from the line of David. But now we finally see so clearly how is it that this one who's coming will be able to deal with the global problem of sin so that this is a light not just for Israel but for the Gentiles too. And the answer is because one is coming who is one of us and who is God. And in that unique singular occurrence, is the opportunity to crush one man for the sins of the whole world. And in this finite window of time to accomplish an infinite payment. And when Jesus showed up with the signs and the wonders and the miracles attesting that he was sent from God and the words he spoke were true, the Jews were standing back and they were saying, I think we're good. Tragic. They should have been in awe. It's you. You're the one we have been finding forgiveness through as we anticipated you for all these years. You're the one 
God is going to crush you for me? In the book of Romans, how Paul wrestled with how the people of God could have missed that. How tragic if we miss it. How tragic if we abandon the central message of the gospel. If we live lives of despair or self-righteousness, if we act like God's love to us works like karma instead of covenant, if we treat others in ways that indicate we know nothing of Calvary's love, if we nod our heads, like and subscribe, as the world tries in vain to solve the problems of the human soul with pills and techniques and entertainment and therapies and endless digital noise, brothers and sisters, let it not be so among us. If all of God's word speaks of Jesus and let all of God's people speak of him too and always. If all of God's promises are in Jesus, then let all of our hopes be in him too. Because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? Amen. Amen.